Thanks for listening to the Refuel Podcast. Be sure to tune in every Thursday for a new episode. Okay, so um, we'll get started here. We're, um, I want to start by asking you some questions. Um, it's not really a game. I'm just curious what you would do for $100. Like, what's your, like what's your threshold of, like, tolerance? Like, what um, pain would you be willing to go through? What humiliation would you be willing to endure? What... Um, yeah, what would you do for $100? So I've got a couple scenarios here um, that I just, we just kind of thought up. Um, for $100, would you eat another $100 bill? How many of y'all would do that? Like, you had to eat a $100 bill, and I'd give you a $100 bill. But would you do it? That's the question. Would you do it? Okay. How many of you, for $100, would sleep with a stuffed animal made up entirely of Robin Williams' chest hair? <laughs> Who would do that for $100? Would you do it? You'd have to, like, spend the night with this stuffed animal, like, coddling it, okay? Um, how many of you would verbally count to one million? Like, one, two, three, four, five. How many of y'all would do that for $100? It's harder than, I, I tried, and I could only get up to, like, 1,000. And I wasted, like, an hour of my day doing that. Um, how many of you, this is... If you have any younger kids at home, like younger siblings, nieces, nephews, you would understand just how serious this one is. How many of you would walk the length of an entire football field over scattered Legos barefoot? <laughs> like, do you realize how, pa- like, I can't explain the pain. Addison finally got Legos, like the pain of a Lego. So, but this kind of illustrates there are some things we will and some things we won't do for money. Um, and all of us kind of have a different threshold, but we'll, we'll do a lot. Like, we'll endure a lot for $100. If I bumped it up to, like, $1,000, like, that, that would change the game, wouldn't it? Because, we, there's, and, and for some of you, it's not money. For some of you, like, guys, like, what would you do for a Corvette? Or for my wife? Like, what would you do for a Corvette? Or what would you do for, there, there's one thing that you want so bad that you would, you would do any of those four things and a whole lot more just to get. Um, so we've been doing this Making a Murderer series. We started it last week, and do you remember what motive we talked about last week? It was kind of scary. We talked about fear. So that was the motive we talked about. We highlighted a few suspects uh, from our, our lineup here who were full of fear, and we talked about someone who was full of fear. Do you remember who was full of fear in the Bible that we talked about last week? Pharaoh. He was full of fear, so he literally killed an entire generation of Hebrews. Um, Tonight we're talking about a different motive. It's the motive of lust. Um, I'm not going to ask you what you think of when you think of lust. I did a quick Google search, and I would not recommend that. Um, but what, when, you think of, when you think of lust, a lot of times you think of the sexual or the romantic as- aspect of, of lust. But it's, it's more than that. It's more than that. First uh, John 2.15 gives us two ways in which we exhibit lust. Do you know what they are? Anybody know that verse? The lust of the, you don't know this verse, okay. Oh, Musgrave knows it. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. It talks about two things we lust after and then one thing we're prideful over. So there are things that we wish we had that we lust for, and then there is, it says the pride of life, and we're going to talk about that next week. There's, there's the things that we have that we take pride over. So there are two ways that we lust, the lust of the flesh. So there are things that we physically, like our body wants, that we'll do whatever it takes to get. 
And then the lust of the eyes. This one's a little harder to explain, but it's, it's things that you see that you want. So marketers have figured this out. Apple's figured this out. Like, isn't the packaging that the iPhone comes in just, like, beautiful? Like, I don't, sometimes I don't even want to open the phone. Like, it's just so, like, nice. Because as soon as I take that phone out and drop it, for the, and drop it three times in the first day, like, it's not that beautiful, perfect, pristine iPhone anymore, is it? But, but we, we know we need it. We see, we, you see something, you know you want it. You see that shirt um, at American Eagle, and you know you want it. But you know as soon as you wear it one time and get mustard on it, it's not going to be quite as good as it was. So then you're going to want the next thing and the next thing. So that's the lust of the eyes. So to make it simple, I came up with, and I kind of asked a couple people too, and we kind of combined this definition of lust, and I think it makes a lot of sense from a Christian standpoint. So you can bring that up, uh, Jake. Lust is, any, is my want or my desire of anything that God does not want or desire for me. So lust is it's, it's not wanting something. I mean, we all want something, but lust is wanting something that God does not want for you. My want or desire of anything God does not want or desire for me. So, lust dishonors its object, right? If you are lusting after someone, you're not lusting after someone because you want to build them up. It's because you want to dishonor them. If you're lusting after something, it means you're, you want to do something with it that's not going to bring it honor. And people struggle with it. Lust comes in different ways. It's, it's physic, physically with, with, um, with uh, sexuality, with uh, overeating, uh, with being lazy. Yeah, there's, there's the physical aspect of it. There's the visual aspect of it. Um, talked about the Apple products. But here's the question I want you to think about, and maybe you'll start to realize this as we go through. What's the one thing you, you would do anything for, even if, even if it meant going against what God had for you? I think there's all in our lives, there's like that one thing that we struggle with. And for some of us, it's different than other people. But what's the one thing? What's the one thing? We're going to look at one guy in the Bible who was a murderer. Because remember, we're talking about murderers. And he had, he, he had that one thing that he struggled with. And his, his, the lust that he struggled with was physical lust. And it was specifically, it, it was sexual in nature. And his name was King David. And his lust drove him to sin, and to cover up that sin, he had a man murdered. So that's, that's the, the story, that's the, the murder we're going to examine, and the motive tonight for that murder was lust. So if you have your Bible, open up to 2 Samuel 11. This is one of those stories that when anyone tells me the Bible's boring, I just kind of point them to one of these stories. And I was like, you cannot read this story and tell me the Bible's boring. So uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to read through a decent portion of the chapter. If you, don't, if you don't have your Bible, you can follow along on the screens here. Um, the words are pretty easy to see. But we're going to start reading here, and I may comment a little bit as we read. But it says, In the spring, at a time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged the rabbi, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace, from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone out to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word back to David, saying, I'm pregnant. Oops, right? Go to the next slide. Um, we're going to keep on going with verse 6. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him 
to David. When Uriah came, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift for the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you, been, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why did you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife as surely as you live? I won't do such a thing. I will not do such a thing. So you see what's going on now? David makes a mistake. He sleeps with another man's wife. This man was off to war where David should have been, so David sends for him, brings him back from the battlefield, and says, hey, go, uh, why don't you go take a little time off? Go, go, go check and see how your wife's doing. David was trying to cover up his sin, but Uriah was such an honest man, such a good man. He's like, I'm not going down there and, and, and eating and drinking and hanging out with my wife and, 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 and loving on my wife when my fellow soldiers are out in the battlefield fighting. So he slept at the gate of the palace. <laughs> so if we keep moving, verse 12, then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem a day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants, and he did not go home, did the same thing. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to Uriah. This is where it starts getting really interesting. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. So while Joab and the city so while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. We're going to skip forward a few chapters here, but you see what happened. David couldn't get Uriah to go home and spend time with his wife to cover up David's sin. So David sent, his, sent Uriah back to the battlefield and told the commander of the military, I want you to run up to this town besiege it, and then as soon as you get to the town, I want you to pull all your men back except Uriah. He left Uriah in the line of fire by himself, and of course, Uriah died. He murdered Uriah by decree. If you fast forward a few verses, uh, Uriah's wife founds, finds out that he died. Verse 26, it says, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband died, she mourned for him. Verse 27, after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife. And bore him a son. But David, but the thing David had done, displeased the Lord. Man, this is, like they could have made a movie out of this. This is serious stuff. So David, he struggled with lust, didn't he? David, um, his lust led him to get a married woman pregnant. Then to have the pregnant woman's husband killed. And then to marry the pregnant woman, and he thought he had it all covered up, but God was very displeased. So I want to make a couple observations from this. I mean, there's a, we could spend like five hours on this, but we just I've kind of condensed it down to a couple things that specifically have to do with lust that I think that we need to learn. And I'll just be honest. I thought, oh, this is going to be a fun series, you know, making a murderer, murder mystery. We're going to talk about blood, guts, crime scene evidence. It's going to be a lot of fun. But the more I started, like, studying these, the more I was like, man, this is kind of a painful you know, the more I you know, started looking in the mirror, I was like, this, this, this kind of hits us a little harder than I planned. 
Um, but I think that's God's plan. So let's go to the first observation. The first observation is wrong place equals wrong thoughts. Look at the first verse. This will clue you in on how this all went awry, how this all went wrong. It says, in spring, at a time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab to go with the king's men. But David remained in Jerusalem. Back in the, in the, middle, in the ancient Near East, in the Middle East, you didn't fight in the winter because you didn't have things like heating and air. You didn't have uh, all those t technological things that could keep an army going in the cold. So it was very dangerous to go to war in the winter. So when spring came, like it was time. Like you got your army together. If you were a king, you got your army together, and you're like, it's go time. We're going to go kick some rear end. We're going to we're, we're go take care of these guys. And every king, that was when every king would go out to war. And back then, it was like, it's not like in the U.S. where the president sits in the Oval Office while the troops go do the fighting. This was, this was back then. The king was the man that led the army into the battlefield. What do we see that's wrong with this picture? When it was time for David to go off, the, off to war, where did he stay? He stayed at home, and he sent his army out. David was not where he was supposed to be. David was supposed to be fighting the battle, yet it was Netflix and chill on the back porch. That was the first problem. That was the first problem. Why did David stay home? Nobody probably thought that was a big deal. David probably even thought, you know, I've been fighting my whole life. I'm going to take one year off. But that wasn't where David was supposed to be, was it? He was supposed to be on the battlefield. That one little decision led to a myriad, a huge number. That's what a myriad means, by the way. A, a huge number of subsequent, of bad decisions that followed that. Some of us, let's think about where, how we can apply that. Some of us, we are not where we, we don't go where we're supposed to go. Where does, where has God called us to go? Everywhere, right? Go everywhere and preach the gospel. God has called you, if you are a Christian in here, maybe not everybody here considers themselves a, a Christian, so if, if you're not a Christian, you can kind of tune out on this one, but here, if you're a Christian, you should listen to this. God has called you to battle. God has called you to wage war for the souls of men and women. We pray for that downstairs. We pray that God will get a heart or get a hold of the hearts of the people that we love and turn them to him. We face a spiritual battle, a battle against good and evil, and God has called us to be soldiers in that battle. When we sit on the couch rather than go fight for the souls of men and women, guess what? We start forgetting that we're in that battle. I find myself doing it too. When I'm checked out of the battle, you know what? That's when Satan's like, it's go time. And he jumps in there and he causes you to lust after this and to be tempted to do this and to do this wrong and to do this wrong. It all starts with a decision to disengage from the battle. Wrong place equals wrong thoughts. You know, some of you had the very vivid illustration of homecoming last weekend. And it was, you know, you go to the wrong party and you're going to get pulled to do the wrong things. You go to the wrong place after homecoming with the wrong people, there's only one part left in the equation, and that you know what it's going to be, don't you? Wrong place, wrong thoughts. David was not where he should have been. If David would have been on the battlefield, he never would have been tempted to sleep with another man's wife. So we need to check our, in the words of, who says check yourself before you wreck yourself? Who was that? Some 80s guy said check yourself before you wreck yourself, and you know they had it right in the 80s. So check yourself before you wreck yourself. Um, let's go to the next one. Lust is never satisfied. If you keep reading in verses 2 through 4, you've got to remember who David was. David wasn't some Joe Schmo living in a condo or in a house, middle class, 
in Israel. He was the king. There was nobody richer than him. There's nobody more powerful than him. There was no one more appealing in that country than him. I, we can't really compare it because we don't have a king. You know, we have a president, and you know, usually no matter what party the president is or how good he is, half the country hates him, half the country loves him. A king, you love the king. You revere the king. David had everything. He had all the money. He lived in a palace. David was always a passionate man, and God used his passion to be a warrior for him, but Satan used David's passion. He was, Satan was always trying to get David to act out with his lust. And David had multiple wives, which was not right. David had multiple wives. He didn't just settle for the, his first wife. He took on another wife and another wife. He had many wives, and then he had, back then, what were called concubines, which were essentially not wives, but they were like girlfriends kind of that lived with you, friends with benefits type scenario, okay? So David, I'm not trying to be crude. I'm just trying to explain to you that was what David was surrounded with, and here's the thing. David had I don't know, tens or hundreds of women in his palace, yet he was on his palace balcony looking down at the one woman he couldn't have. Lust is never satisfied. You think that if you just do that one thing, even though it's wrong, you know, if I just go to a party you know, one time and engage in that behavior one time, then everybody won't give me such a hard time about never doing it, and I won't do it again. But lust is never satisfied. You take one more step, you take one step, and you're going to take one more step, and you're going to take one more step. It's like Pringles. You can't eat just one. You keep going, and you keep going, and you keep going. And with David, he had, yeah, he, was, he was sexually lusting after this woman. He had all these women in his palace. It wasn't right, by the way. He should have been more like Uriah and been committed to one woman who he loved and who he cherished. But he, he, his lust was not satisfied, so he kept trying to find continual outlets for his lust. The third thing, lust blinds you to its consequences. Yeah, did it never cross David's mind that Bathsheba would be pregnant from their encounter? It's almost like, how'd that happen? You know, like, they must not have had health class in Israel. Like, but, and I, I kind of joke about that, but David knew very well how babies were made, but the thing is, that's the last thing from his mind. All he could think about was the temptation that Satan placed in his head. And for us, when we are being tempted, when we are battling with lust, we got to be careful because we start getting blinded to the possibility of any consequences. Think about all the money. I wrote down a couple scenarios, here, and here's how we don't see consequences. A couple questions I want to ask you. Why are there so many health classes, yet so many teen pregnancies? Why do we know we need to be careful with money, yet so many Americans are in debt? Why do we know that overeating causes heart disease, yet we're the unhealthiest city in America? It's because lust, only thinking about one thing and doing whatever it takes to get it, blinds us to the long-term and eternal consequences of our actions. So, lust blinds you to its consequences, and then David, he was in. And that was the pro this was the like dreaded sentence he got. I'm pregnant. Because even though David wasn't where he needed to be spiritually, most people thought he was a pretty decent guy. But wait till they find out that he stayed home, one of his warriors went to war, and he got the guy's wife pregnant. You talk about a threat to his kingdom, right? You talk about a blow to his squeaky clean image. 
David's got himself a problem, but he takes the wrong approach to solving that problem. Let's look at what his approach was. You can't dig or sin your way out of sin, and that's what David tried to do. David, <laughs> David keeps trying and trying and trying to cover up. The first thing he does is he calls Uriah back from the battlefield, and Uriah's like, why am I getting called back? Am I in trouble? So Uriah comes, and he meets with the king, which to him is this great honor. You know, I'm the, the king's the guy I'm fighting for. So David says, you know, you're a good man. You've been fighting hard. I want you to go home, and I want you to spend some time with your wife. Take a day off. But kind of like what we were talking about, Uriah, he's, too, he's, too, he's got too much character. He's too much of a good man to say, you know what? I think I'll do that. He's like, uh-uh. He's like, my soldiers, my fellow soldiers at arms, they're fighting. I'm sleeping right here at your doorstep, David, until I get to go back to battle because that's where I'm supposed to be. Oh, that David would have had the character of Uriah. So first day, he can't convince Uriah to go home to his wife. So the next day, David's like, I know what I'll do. This is where, this is where the sin continues to come in. David purposely gets Uriah drunk. He keeps giving him shot after shot after shot. And he gets Uriah drunk, and he's like, now I'll convince him to go and spend the night with his wife. What does Uriah do? Even though his senses were dulled, he still, that character came out, and he said, I will not. He said, I'm ready to go back to battle. So David says, you know what? David's getting frustrated. David's like, this is a ticking time bomb. Somebody's going to find out. I've got to finish this off. So he sends Uriah back to the battlefield, and he pulls Joab, his, his, the army commander, aside and says, I want you to send everybody to rush this city, and then at the right time, I want everyone to fall back, but don't tell Uriah. So everybody's charging the city. When you're a teenage guy, you'll drag race somebody at some point in your life, I'm sure. I don't, I don't suggest it, but yeah. I'd always, like, pretend to get guys ready to drag race, and I'd be like, vroom, vroom, and then I'd let them, like, totally, like, peel out and see if I can get them pulled over. But it's, it's that type of thing where they're all like, vroom, 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 and they get ready to take off. Your eye's the only one that charges, and he dies. Put to death by decree of David. David was in a hole, and he kept trying to dig his way out. He kept digging himself deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And some of us, we get in trouble. We do something wrong, and we think, well, I'm in trouble, but if I just do this, or if I just do this, or if I just do this, I can cover it up. But did David cover it up? No. All he did was hurt a great man with great character. And you know when you act on your lust, you give in to temptation, good people get hurt. Good people get hurt. That, that girl that you went too far with, that's somebody's future wife. Yeah, they say that Americans throw away more, uh, more than enough food to feed the hungry in the world. Think about that. When, when you get pizza and you've got those two leftover pieces of pizza and they find its way into your refrigerator and two weeks later your mom's cleaning the refrigerator out and it's like, you know, get rid of this. The food that we throw away is enough to feed the world. God has blessed us with all these abundant resources, and yet we hold on to them and we waste them. And people are dying in the process. God gave David all these abundant resources and all these things, and David still hurt somebody because instead of taking what God gave him, he lusted and took what God did not have for him. You can't sin your way out of sin. When you sin, try to sin your way out of sin, people get hurt. Um, the, the fifth thing, Lust displeases God. Not even just the act, but the thought. David thought he could sweep his sin under the rug, and you know what he did? Except 
he forgot one thing. Nobody tricks God. It said the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Are you more concerned about pleasing others or pleasing God? Um, then the, the next one is lust blinds you to sin in your life. We don't have, I didn't re, we didn't read these verses, but if you look at verse, uh, if you keep going to chapter 12, God sends a prophet to confront David about his, about his sin. That prophet's name was Nathan. And Nathan went, and you got to talk about a guy that was not scared of anything. Nathan goes to tell the king he was a sinner. <laughs> That's scary, right? That'd be like you going to the biggest, baddest guy in your school and be like, hey, you sinned. <laughs> He'd be like, I'm going to put you in a locker. You know? So he goes, and, he goes and tells David, and he, he does it in a very creative way. He says, David, I have a, I have, I have a scenario to, to tell you. He said, there was a man who had all, this, all these cattle, all these sheep. He was a very rich man. And then there was a poor man over here. And all the poor man had was this one little sheep. But that poor man, he took care of his sheep, and he groomed his sheep, and he fed his sheep. He cared for it, he cared for it as much as he cared for his own life. This rich man over here that has lots of sheep and lots of cattle had some friends come over and was wanting to throw them a feast. And rather than feed them one of the hundreds of sheep or hundreds of cattle that he had, he went over, he stole this man's one sheep, and killed it and used it to feed his party. And David, he's getting, he's getting red. He's getting mad. He's like, tell me who this son of a gun is. I'm going to bring him in here. I'm going to lock him up. I'm going to slam the door. I'm going to throw the smackdown on him. That doesn't happen in my kingdom. And then Nathan just kind of, I don't know how, what his vocal inflection was, but I can just see him saying, you're that man. And David's like, Because David was, he, David was so mad at this guy. He's like, how could somebody be so stupid and so sinful and so lustful? His blind, he had blind spots in his life. And lust creates blind spots in our life. And one thing you'll learn as you're learning to drive is that the mirrors won't show you everything. Your rearview mirrors won't show you everything. And there are blind spots when you're driving on the, on the interstate. And if, you, if there's somebody in your blind spot, you just kind of look at the mirror and then get over. You're going to hear a bam, you know, because you've, you've almost run somebody off the road. Maybe you've done that before. Lust creates blind spots in our life. David was so mad at that rich guy, but he forgot that he was the rich guy. And for some of us, we have those blind spots in our life, and we can see everything wrong with everybody else, but we don't see the sin that's in our life. Here's a good litmus test. You know what I mean by a litmus test? This is like, yeah, a litmus test is you put something in a little concoction, you put it in there, and if it's red, you know, it's, it's, it's bad. If it's green, it's blue, or it's bad, or it's good, or whatever. It's a test. It's a scientific test, okay? Never mind. It's a test. Here's the test, okay? Here's the test for if you or if I have a blind spot in my life. I better read it, because I always get these wrong. When I'm more furious about sin in the lives of others than I am about sin in my own life, I probably have a blind spot or two. If through this whole lesson you're like, man, I hope she hears this. I hope he hears this. He's such a poser. I hope he hears this. Chase really needed to hear this one. Yeah. <laughs> no. Damon really needed to hear this one. If I'm more concerned about whether Chase heard it or whether Damon heard it than whether I heard it, guess what? I'm probably the one with a blind spot. 
Here's the final one, and then we'll get out of here. This is number seven, and this is my favorite one. There is victory over lust. We've got a dead body right here. And what if this dead body was the body of someone who struggled with drugs? And I came in and I brought all my, well, not my drug paraphernalia. I don't have drug paraphernalia. But if, if I brought, bought a bunch of drug paraphernalia and I set it right here, and I brought the actual drugs and I set it right here in front of this dead body that used to be prone to taking those drugs and addicted to those drugs, would this dead body be tempted to take those drugs? It's not a trick question. No, right? Why? Because it's a dead body, right? Look at this verse in Romans. Romans 6.10, it says, In the same way, count yourself dead to sin but alive in Christ Jesus. When you put your faith in Jesus, this is going to sound really weird, but this is what the Bible says, and it's true, and the more you think about it, the more you understand it. When you put your faith in Jesus, you die. Your old self, your old body with its old lust dies. And a new life begins. Count yourself dead to sin, but alive in Christ Jesus. Before you put your faith in Christ Jesus, you didn't have a choice. You chose sin every time. Every time. You chose lust. You chose the wrong things. But when you put your faith in Jesus... The shackles came off your hands and your feet. And you no longer, verse 14, sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under the law, but you're under grace. Last week we talked about being a prisoner to fear. Some of you, you've forgotten that you don't have to be a prisoner or a slave to sin anymore. That thing you do at night when your parents are asleep and you think nobody else sees and you think you'll never be able to get over, you can get over it because you're no longer a prisoner to sin. You're no longer a slave to sin. You can say no because Jesus took that sin on the cross. Don't forget that. We read these stories about guys like David and we think, well man, if David fell, that means I'm a sitting duck. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Sin shall no longer be your master. You're not under the law, but under grace. You've got a new master, by the way, that you serve. You don't serve sin anymore. Kick him to the curb. He doesn't have any claim to you. He doesn't have any legal claim to you. Your new master is Jesus, and he calls you to obedience in him. So write these things, three things down. If you don't have time to write them down, get them on the app tomorrow. The first thing, if you want to put lust in the grave, if you're struggling with this, this is the one that's your bugaboo, first thing to do is confess your sin. Jesus says if you confess your sin, he's faithful to forgive your sin. It's, it, it's a A plus B equals C equation. You confess your sin, God forgives your sin, you're back in a right relationship with Jesus. It's one of the hardest things you'll do, but it's one of the most rewarding things you do. Confess your sin. Let, you know, look in those blind spots. Stop looking at other people's sin. Look at your own sin and confess it. And the next thing is change your stomping grounds. Go back and get back engaged in the battle. You know what happens to us as a youth group? We get engaged in the battle on a mission trip. We get sin out of our lives because we realize the spiritual warfare going on. Then we start sitting in school. And then we start sitting, and then we start sitting, and then we start sitting. And we totally disengage from the battle. We wonder why Satan starts to get a foothold in our lives and in our youth group. is because we've stopped engaging. Change your stomping grounds. Be where you need to be, doing the things you need to do for Jesus. And here's the final thing. I love this one. Cast out temptation through prayer. You can literally, well, it's not you doing it, but prayer 
pushes back the darkness. It pushes back the temptation. The stronger your prayer life is, the stronger you will be against temptation. I promise you. I promise you. That was a lot. I know. I'm sorry. And we got to end it. We're going to go down to tag. So let me pray for you guys. Um, Let's pray. Father, thank you that we're no longer slaves to sin, that we have a new master. We want to please you. We want the things that you want for us. And anything that you don't want for us, we know is toxic, and we want to get it out of our lives. So, God, I pray that we'll desire the things that you want for us, that we'll go the places you want to go, and we'll fight in the battles that you want us to fight, that you'll keep us pure, and that you'll keep us committed and devoted to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the Refuel Podcast. If you have any questions or would like to review the notes from this podcast, be sure to download the Refuel app from the App Store on any mobile device.